got well read sit back play some dick jokes on the podcast instead different guests from near and far bringing bright light to the dark they sit down have a heart to heart then joke about it fart to fart so listen and enjoy it funny fucked up stories committing mental crimes do some time with drew lord Hello, everybody, and welcome to Doing Time, where humans talk about their experiences in a psych ward. Today, we have licensed marriage and family therapist Lauren Rosen on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. I just took good. work off. Didn't say anything, but um, <laughs> so, well, yeah. I'm so glad to be able to, to chat with you about, about OCD today. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited because that's like my main monster Um, And I was really excited to have you on, too, because I have talked to a therapist, but he's a former therapist, now comedian. So I haven't talked to like a practicing therapist, you know. Um, Yeah. So I'm super pumped. But I just wanted to get a little bit of your background. So if you want to introduce yourself, that'd be great. For sure. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Lauren Rosen. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, I treat individuals mostly with OCD and anxiety disorders, as well as eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And I work in a number of states. The license is not yet national, uh, but Mm -hmm. I work in California, Florida, Utah, Arizona, potentially Washington soon, Washington state and, uh, and some other locales. So, um, so yeah, and I've been, I've been doing work primarily with OCD and anxiety since 2016. Okay. And yeah, that's kind of, and I should also mention, because I am pretty open about this. Um, I, I am also a person who lives with OCD and, and who has, you know, is in recovery. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah. It informs the way that I work. I think, um, not, of course, everyone is different, but just having lived experience, I think is, is quite helpful in understanding what people are going through and how to support them. And I know that my own therapist who, who first supported me when I was first diagnosed also has OCD. And that was really helpful for me to understand just from the Mm -hmm. vantage point of, you know, this person gets it. Right. And I can believe this person if they say that recovery is possible. Yeah. That's like, I made a list of questions before I was going to interview you and you already knocked out two of them. One of them was, do you have a therapist? And the other one was, do you have OCD? (laughs) But now you have an OCD therapist. So that's awesome. Um, So hell yeah. I love that. And also, I mean, it's, I don't, I assume that, but I also am really glad to have that reassurance because I just don't think it's helpful to have a therapist that doesn't really understand what you're going through or never really lived it. Um, Because, like, that personal experience is super helpful. And I was going to ask, so first question on the podcast, if you haven't listened, I always ask how much time have you done? And that means, like, in therapy or in a psych ward typically. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah. So uh, my story doesn't include any psych wards, but Mm -hmm. I have been in therapy on and off since I was seven years old. Oh, wow. So... I am now 35, which <laughs> makes me in. I, but I don't know if I was like in. I had like some stints on the outside, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, over the last 28 years, I've spent most of them doing some sort of therapeutic work. If not in therapy, then you know through 
support groups and self-help. I happen to be sober for 16 years. Oh, congratulations. So, uh, That's amazing. Thank you. You're Thanks. Um, and that, you know, that journey, I, I went through 12 step as well. So that, mm -hmm. that was a big part of, of the process for me and, um, lots of individual therapists been in group therapy. So mm -hmm. I, I practice what I preach. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, you know, yeah, I guess that you, answers your question. Hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. So you started therapy at seven. What, what prompted that? So when I was seven and looking back, I see this as the first manifestation of OCD. Mm -hmm. I have a number of diagnoses and I'm open about all of them. Mm -hmm. um, but OCD is the one that's sort of been with me probably the longest. Yeah. Um, and what happened was I think you know, a number of triggers came up as they do in life. I, my grand, no, my, not my grandmother, my aunt was, um, was dying of lung cancer and oh. yeah. And so that was happening. And I also, at, you know, at age seven, that question of what happens when you die and the fact that death even exists mm -hmm. is something that really starts to be introduced, maybe a little bit younger for some, but that, that sort of, that, experience right of actually losing someone and also having um having the awareness for the first time and just lots of change in life which mm -hmm. tends to be a wonderful trigger for anxiety and ocd um, yeah. my mom was going back to work in an office and all of a sudden i found myself having these these repetitive thoughts about well what if, what if I die? What if my mom dies? What if my dad mm -hmm. dies? What mm -hmm. happens when we die? If, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what if I don't, what if I go to heaven or what if I don't go to heaven or what if I go mm -hmm. to heaven and I don't like eternity, right? Like, <laughs> so, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. When my mom was like, oh dear God, what is happening right now? Um, <laughs> you're like you're seven. You just learned yeah. how to read. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, meanwhile, I'm like, I'm, I'm uh, exploring all of these existential questions. And my mom right. was like, I don't know. Like, yeah. She's like, I don't even how know about we wait and see question. Mark? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, at, at a certain point, my parents were sort of besides themselves. And, and to be clear, it wasn't just these thoughts. It was hours in the evenings, usually before bedtime, where I would be weeping and pleading with them to tell me what was going to happen and to, oh, wow. To tell me that I was going to be okay. Oh, wow. And so I was terrified. I was yeah. terrified and I didn't get diagnosed at that point, but I did go see several therapists. Mm -hmm. um, to this day, we'll sort of giggle about it because, you know, I remember one of them having me make a bracelet and I was like, uh, I went to therapy and all I got was this damn bracelet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but I, I think at a certain point I found a, a therapist and she wasn't specialized in OCD and I didn't mm -hmm. get a diagnosis, but she knew enough to support me in accepting uncertainty. And mm, that was my okay. first foray into that was, right. you know, she's like, well, where were you 10 years ago? Of course I'm seven. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, well, were you okay then? I was like, I guess. And then right. she said, well, where will you be 10 years after you die? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, well, will you be okay? And I was like, I guess. And that was, yeah that was what freedom looked like for me. All of wow, a sudden it yeah. was like, Oh, you know, I guess I just have to accept that I can't know. And, and that's okay. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, just like OCD tends to do, it showed up an anxiety as well, right. um, which they go hand in hand, really. Uh, they basically, the Hydra kept growing heads, right? We'd cut one off and then all of a sudden it would grow a new one. And, and mm-hmm. instead of being about, um, uh, you know, obsessions about death and, and dying, it was um, a lot of anxiety about schoolwork. And then it was you know, anxiety about my body. And then it was drinking to try to cover the anxiety, you know? So it's, mm-hmm. it was a, a lot of, there were a lot of permutations over the years. Um, of my anxiety mm-hmm. for sure yeah wow that's i so my anxiety showed up when i was around the same age or my ocd showed up when i was six but it mm-hmm. wasn't like obsessive thoughts it was more like counting and tapping mm-hmm. and like um like when i was learning how to read if i didn't read like a word right i would start the whole book over and my mom mm-hmm. was like that's not like how you do it. And I was like, no, this is the right way. Like I have to start the Mm -hmm. whole entire book over kind of thing. And I feel like when you're younger, people don't really know what's going on because you know, you're not even fully developed yet. So that's interesting that you were having those. I mean, like what a smart kid. I I didn't even (laughs) (laughs) know what death was until, you know, later, but man, that's crazy. I, I really, I mean, so then after that, did you, so it sounds like, you know, when you were younger, like the OCD manifested in the death way. And then when you got older, it, it always like turns into other things. That's um, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and what was your experience like once it transitioned to other things? Did you use the same technique of allowing yourself to accept that you're not going to know or what kind of happened there? No. So for years I went undiagnosed. It was, I always remember this stat because the average time from onset of symptoms to correct diagnosis for someone with OCD is 14 to 17 years. Wow. And I was 17 years later in an office with an OCD specialist being diagnosed. So yeah. I was 24. And in the interim, I had no idea what was going on okay. and I, I just assumed that this was who I was. And mm-hmm. I, to some extent it is right. Like I, I, it's interesting. And thank you for the compliment of saying, you know, what an intelligent kid. I think yeah. that we with anxiety and OCD tend to think a lot right. and that's not inherently a bad thing. The issue of course is, is when the thinking through things is not so much in the realm of problem solving, but in the realm of endless cycles of rumination. Oh my God, yeah. that don't go anywhere. And right. so, um, yeah, I, I think the, generally speaking, the, the topics were all over the place. I just okay. didn't know I didn't know what they were. I didn't know that it was, yeah. it was a problem. I just thought, oh, this is, this is my brain. And mm-hmm. again, to a certain extent it is, but also I didn't know that there were ways of, of sort of driving my brain that would be more effective than the way I was. Yeah. Well, when you're living with it, you, you only live in one brain. So you only think that that's the right way to think. And you might not even think you have anxiety because you're like, well, this is the only way. Doesn't everyone think like this? And then you realize right. that, no, <laughs> it's a disorder. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's something something up there that's going on, you know? Um, I was going to ask too, like, what, because this is more the therapist side of it because I had like a ton of questions about being an OCD therapist. But what's the yeah. biggest stigma with OCD? 
So there are no shortage of, of stigmas, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I would say one of the, I don't know what the, the most common one is, but I think the most damaging misunderstanding about OCD is that it's all about hand washing and door checking. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think people have this awareness from mostly from film and television, which, Hey, how great that they're trying to spread some sort of awareness about these things. Right. But, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie as good as it gets, but Melvin mm-hmm. Udall and the, the character who's constantly washing, constantly having to step in a certain way over cracks. That's mm-hmm. what we think of when we think of OCD. And so that's a big part of the reason that I didn't get diagnosed until 24 was mm-hmm. I, this is an OCD, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't, I, I don't wash my hands excessively. I'm not particularly neat. I don't have concerns about uh, locking doors really. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so understanding that OCD is characterized by obsessions, mm-hmm. which are intrusive, unwanted, repetitive, anxiety-provoking, sticky thoughts that bring about doubt and discomfort and anxiety and all of those emotional experiences, which results in compulsive behaviors that you don't have to be able to see, actually. Mm-hmm. And sometimes behaviors are mental, which I had no idea until, like mm-hmm. I said, I was 24, that, that mm-hmm. the the thinking I was doing was something that I had some say in. And, right, right. Yeah. And so I, I think understanding that I mentioned reassurance when I was a kid, this is not something I understood to be a compulsion. Mostly I just thought of, of behavioral compulsions, like mm-hmm. hand washing, like door checking. And it can look like reassurance seeking. It can look like mental compulsions, like analysis, rumination. And it can also look like avoidance where you just steer clear of certain things so that you don't feel hopefully in in theory, anxiety in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just described like my whole life. basically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All those. Cause like I, cause my compulsions are mental. So I think people have a hard time understanding that I have OCD. They're like, no, you just overthink things. And I'm like, no, I've like been to exposure therapy and I definitely have OCD and that's my main thing. And it's funny you say that it takes so long to get diagnosed. Cause I got diagnosed when I was a kid and I think people knew I had reassurance seeking because there was this one teacher that knew that I had it because they were like, Drew will ask me the same question three times and I give her the same answer every single time, but she still asks me. And Mm -hmm. so I think they had more awareness about what OCD was and then I knew I had it, but I didn't know that that was the main thing that I should tackle because Mm -hmm. when I went to exposure therapy, I worked on like an eating disorder and I thought it was an eating disorder, but it really was OCD where I would eat the mm-hmm. same things at the same times. And if I didn't, I would like freak out and start crying and like, mm-hmm. I just wasn't okay. And, yeah. and then the mental compulsions were like counting in my head and like s- certain things that to this day, I can't describe like how I, I guess, um, compulse, like mm-hmm. there, there's certain things that I do in my head where I like have certain images and it has to be a certain way before I can continue with whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I think that was when I asked the biggest stigma, I was like hoping you were going to say that because <laughs> that's what I feel is the biggest stigma is that it's like, oh, yeah. you're not neat. You don't have OCD. And I'm like, oh, OK, you know. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think 
that's one of the most unfortunate misunderstandings that exists around the disorder. And it really does. That's why, you know, the idea of people coming out and saying, oh, I'm so OCD, people tend to think, oh, well, why are, why are people so thing about that? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, can't you take a joke? And it's like, I can take a joke and I actually, I can even be flippant about my own OCD. Right. And I am, I laugh at certain (laughs) obsessions that I've had in the past and certain compulsive things that I've done. Um, but the problem for me is I'm not okay with spreading misinformation that prevents people from getting the help that they need. And so mm-hmm. saying things like OCD stands for obsessive Christmas disorder or whatever, mm-hmm. um, that, or, or the whole Kardashians and the whole close CD thing, that, oh. that's not OCD. Mm-hmm. Like she wants to stay tidy and clean. That is very different <laughs> yeah. from what we're looking at. Yeah, we're like we're trying to kill our OCD, and she's like making it into a headline, right? And it's like the amount of misinformation that is spread on such a huge platform yeah. is—it's painful because mm-hmm. for those of us who have experienced it, it's life-changing. It's—it's. It's, the intensity of it and the stuckness of it, it, it just overtakes everything. Yeah. So for me, I had a lot of behaviors that were avoidance. There were certain dives that I wouldn't do in practice because I knew that they would bring me like a bundle of anxiety. And so it was very time consuming. Um, and it controlled my whole entire life. Like I quit diving. I went to university of Denver. I dove and I quit because um, of, you know, not being able to shut off my thoughts. And then, you know, after quitting that, I went home and I went to exposure therapy, but it was so, my life was so controlled by my OCD that like I could, you know, I could be talking to somebody and have no idea what they were saying because I was so clouded by my own thoughts. Um, Yeah. And that's the thing is that until you have some education around OCD, how it works, and you start to face it head on and say, like, I can have these thoughts, I can have these feelings and practice that through ERP, that Mm -hmm. OCD does really run your life because you're unwilling to feel the anxiety and have the thoughts. And so... Mm -hmm you do start to avoid things that matter to you. Like what you were talking about with, you know, with leaving, you know, the diving team and Mm -hmm. sort of being so, uh, so that's the avoidance side of things, but also being trapped in your head, trying to figure things out and missing out on the life going on around you, whether that's your teacher talking or your friend talking. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that's really important because most people who come into treatment like, oh, how do I get rid of these thoughts? How do I get rid of these feelings? And I always have to be sort of initially the bearer of bad news. Like, I, I don't have a magic wand. I wish I could do those things, but that, that's not mm-hmm. possible. You're a human and you're going to have rogue thoughts and you're going to have mm-hmm. all sorts of feelings. And really what we have control over here is your behavior. And mm-hmm. um, the good news is that if you change your behaviors, you get your life back. Mm-hmm. And over time, the thoughts and feelings, when you accept them unconditionally, they stop bothering you quite as much. You become mm-hmm. more, um, more practiced at just making space for them. 
Right. Can you they... give for people who like aren't familiar with OCD and like the connection? Because like I I speak your code. Like I understand yes. like, everything you're saying. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I speak OCD, so I know like okay, like I could pull an example in my head of a time where the thoughts have controlled the behavior, and then when I cut out the behaviors that I'm like reassurance checking or checking or compulsing, like I know that that's going to dissipate the feelings and thoughts and they don't bother me. But can you give an example to people who don't understand OCD of like what that could look like for someone? Yeah. Let's take the example of ruminating like you were in in the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. That if you are listening to a teacher and you maybe you see, or, oh, I don't know, you're studying history and you're studying about a war and you get this violent image in your mind of somebody, I don't know, stabbing somebody to death. And then Mm -hmm. you think, oh my gosh, why did I have that image in my mind? Does that mean Mm -hmm. that I want to murder someone? Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not giving this to you, but just saying generally somebody might have a thought like this. Yeah. Then you're now in class and you're trying to listen to what the teacher has to say, but you keep getting caught trying to figure out what your emotions are when these images come up so that you can be sure Mm -hmm. that you don't actually want to kill somebody. Yeah. Or you're too busy ruminating, trying to remember if when you've had thoughts like this before, if you've had an urge to harm somebody. And so the, the sort of constant trying to figure it out in this case, in the form of, of rumination or mental analysis or mental checking that, that, that takes you out of your life in the same Mm -hmm. way that, you know, if you had these same fears that were brought on by knives in the kitchen and you started to avoid the kitchen, that could start to become pretty problematic because, Mm -hmm. you know, the need for food and all mm-hmm. and right. <laughs> also right like the the reassurance seeking can really start to put a damper on your relationships the the tendency you know you mentioned it with your teacher before and and as i mentioned when i was younger the tendency to seek reassurance it, it's non-stop it's over and over again it's the same questions there's no satiating the question even if you get the same answer over and over again and so that can start to really put a, a damper on your relationships because people are right. like, God, this is a lot. Like this person, right. what is wrong with them? This is annoying. This is frustrating. Yeah. Um, so it, there are all of these ways in which compulsions can really eat away at your life, the behaviors mm-hmm. themselves, not the thoughts, right? You could have the thought of murdering or stabbing somebody, have the, the concern pop up. What if that means I want to hurt somebody mm-hmm. and just go, I don't know, and accept the terror and anxiety that you feel at not knowing and continue Mm -hmm. on about the task of living. Mm -hmm. It's an option. Yeah. It's just not one that most people recognize (laughs) (laughs) is as beneficial as it is um, because they think, Oh, if I could just, this is the lie that OCD feeds you is like, if I could just figure this thing out, then I'd have peace of mind forever and ever. And it's like, "Mm, no, because then it turns into something else, you know? Right. It's like for me, if once I figure something out, it's like there's certain things that my OCD latches on to. And I I know and I don't know if it's in like the therapist world, but this one my friend was telling me who has OCD that it latches on to things that you value. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, it latches on to like for a while it was about my dog. Like I had OCD that my dog was aggressive and he wasn't. And I would just be like, oh, he's going to like bite me or like bite. And I would just like 
compulse to like make sure he wasn't like aggressive and I was it was bad like I was real like it, it consumed everything but then once I got over that and I was like oh then it turned into like you know having OCD about relationships and like sex mm. and it yeah. always like transferred into things and then once I realized I have to like work on my OCD and not like those things specifically right um that really not, helped me yeah yeah I think it's so important because it's not about learn or trying to figure one thing out because to your point it'll just you'll want to figure out another thing and another thing it's sort of like an addiction to trying to figure things out oh my god it is it's such an addiction like such an addiction like where there were certain times where he was a puppy and playing with other dogs and he would you know bite their face or whatever and I'm like he's an aggressive dog and people are like no that's how he plays and I would replay the image in my head like multiple 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 times and like try to figure it out and figure it out and figure it out and figure it out and then people are like well what if he is an aggressive dog and I was like well yeah I mean like I guess it wouldn't be like the worst thing in the world you know you like kind of make it into like you you play out the worst scenario and then realize that like your head is wrong in realizing that it's not the worst thing in the world of what, the, you know, whatever you're thinking. And even if it is, it's not, not that it's like not likely to happen, but it's, it's typically, I'm really worried about something else. I think a lot of times when I'm compulsing or thinking about something so much, it's mostly because I'm not really addressing what's going on, if that makes mm. sense. So like, well, for me, the, yeah, like it's more uncertainty. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like recently I've been having OCD about like, cause I'm going through like, I, I mean, it's been like a couple months since me and my boyfriend broke up, but like, I think, and I, and I don't think about that. I just think about like the new people that I've like hooked up with, I guess. And I'll like think about it. And then I realize it's because I'm not addressing like the real situations going on in my life. Like my brother is a heroin addict and he like has a warrant out for his arrest and I've been like freaking out and I'm like, Oh, I'm not dealing with, this problem I'm just like which is like which is like I think I latch on to things that are uncertain if I know I'm like going in a roundabout way but it's like I think for me it's more I'm latching on to like the sex or like the like talking to guys because that's uncertain and then my real uncertainty fear is like that my brother's gonna die you know what I mean like does that you mean I think like it it really just like goes like it comes out sideways for sure. And I think it doesn't even have to be something happening in life. There's plenty of uncertainty that's just nascent yeah. to being alive, including what's going to happen after death, right? Which is a pretty common one, you know, me and my obsessions when I was younger aside, right? Like this sort of um, great unknown that awaits us all mm-hmm. that's that's guaranteed. Um, yes. <laughs> it's definitely there. And so... I think there are, it doesn't even have to be something as blatant as, wow, there's a lot of uncertainty in my life. And I'm sorry that you're going through that with your brother, but it doesn't, you know, oftentimes though, you're right, that there is this uncertainty that, that we're unwilling to accept. And if I could just control this one thing, if I could just make absolutely sure about this, then everything would be okay. It's such a lovely lie, isn't it? I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. oh yeah. Would it be if I could just be sure about, you know, I don't know uh, whether or not my hands were clean or whether or mm-hmm. not I, I had a certain intention, then I totally, would totally feel okay. That, oh my yeah, God. Of yes. Course we follow that. Of Speaking my we, language. Yeah. Oh, I know, that, you know, it's like every I, day, every day I have those where I'm like, if I could just figure this out, like I, 
Well, I mean, and I know that you were saying it's like it doesn't always have to be, you know, like a tragic thing that's happening. But for me, typically, that's what's going on is that I don't address like the big things I have in my life. So it comes out in like small ways where I latch on to certain things that are going on that are so trivial and like don't matter (laughs) in the long run. Right. And I think that that's why periods of transition are times when uh, OCD tends to come up is because it's like you feel that fundamental groundlessness of life and then all of a sudden it's like how do I hold on real tight and it's like ah there's something that I yeah, can really try and yeah. figure out for um, for a period of time it was um I, and I don't know if like you can go into examples too but like for a period of time it was I got hit by a car last summer on my bike and like oh I God. got hit from behind so I like actually do not know what happened but I like kind of do and for literally I think like two months I would just like replay and I'm like okay I think this is what happened I think this is what happened and then I told the like police something different because I just was like in such shock and they asked me questions very quickly. And for like months, I would just, every time I go to bed, I would be like, okay, no, she came from this side and I did this, you know, and I would like replay it and replay it. And I'm like, if I could just figure this out, I would be so much happier. And yeah. I still have no idea what the fuck happened. Well, because you know? then you won't, right? Yeah. The thing is that you, you don't rest when that happens because it, the issue isn't that you I mean I'm not talking about with your situation per se. <laughs> it's like I like, did get hit by a car so it is hard to rest. But yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I, I think that this idea that the that you can get the answer and that just dispels it is it's inaccurate because the problem isn't that you don't have the answer, it's the mechanism by which you need to have the answer. Yes, yes. It's yeah. that constant trying to get it and so that's why the antidote is saying you know what i'm i'm going to step back and not get it and feel the discomfort that's 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 where that's exposure therapy for sure that is totally and exposure therapy i I suppose it could be helpful for people out there who, who don't know about it it's really about facing down the fears right like in the the example before cutting things with the knife that you've been avoiding mm-hmm. um, or, you know, doing something that you tend to ask reassurance after having done, like um, you cut the, the, let's just say that, that actually you have been cutting the, with the knives, but then afterwards you're like asking your mother whether or not uh, you are likely to murder somebody. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so one way or another that you're doing the the thing that causes you to have thoughts and feelings and then you're resisting doing the compulsions and other disorders we call them safety behaviors right the things that are intended to alleviate discomfort and doubt and uncertainty um, mm-hmm. because those are the problem they're, they're the solution at first but unfortunately we become dependent upon them the more that we do them and then they as we were talking about earlier begin to eat away at our lives so learning mm-hmm. how to face them head on and say okay i'm going to feel this anxiety i'm not going to do anything about it um that's that's recovery in a nutshell mm-hmm. it's very hard um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah some, I mean... some days are, are harder than others and i think also like the fact that we don't it's not just that that disengaging from the search for for certainty is hard um I totally lost my train of thought never mind no you're totally good um I was gonna ask you too like because yeah I mean living with and in recovering and all that stuff and exposure therapy is super hard um my hardest I don't know if you do you have like a hardest exposure that you have mm. done 
that you'd like to share? I don't know. I think the thing <laughs> is that you mentioned you mentioned earlier that it picks on what you value most. And I yeah, think that that's sure. the, or the things that actually scare you. Mm-hmm. It's totally true um, because I can I have clients all the time who are like, that's not scary. I want that form of OCD. It's like, yeah, well, if you had that, it, it would bother you. Um, right. <laughs> I think yeah. that in the moment, all right, all of them are the hardest mm-hmm. because that's what's getting you the most at that moment. Yeah. Oh, that's true for sure. Yeah. So, I, I feel like, well, cause like there were certain exposures I did that were super hard where like, I would have to, for real, go around with a sticky note on my shirt that said, like, please judge me. And then, like, therapists would, like, fake judge me. But I, like, actually, because I had a fear of people judging me. And then people, like, I'd say, like, oh, I'd pick out a table topic card and go, oh, I ate salad today. And they're like, why would you eat salad? That's so weird. Like, they would purposely judge me. And then I actually would be, like, they're such good actors that I'd be like, I would get so upset. I was like, oh, I don't know. I just got what I wanted today, you know? And, like, it was just this constant, like, addressing my fears. And that was super hard. Honestly, though, the hardest one for me was my eating disorder because, like, I was, you know, I did diving and gymnastics, and I was, like, basically naked all the time. So I was, like, constantly looking at my body and doing a sport with my body. And um, the hardest exposure for me, the only one that I cried over was uh, they – gave me a Nutrigrain bar in the middle of the day and I never, you know, I had to eat like what, what I wanted at that, that same time. And they gave me like a random food at a random time and I ate it cause I was fucking starving cause I never ate. And yeah. I just started bawling. Like I was, I was like, I'm going to be fat. I'm going to be fat. And like, just, mm. you know, and I, it just like was really, that was like the most difficult one for me. Um, yeah. And I and I, I definitely don't know if it has to do anything with like attaching to like important values, but I definitely think like it, I guess it's not that like being overweight would kill me. It's more like I think it goes deeper into will people love me if I ended up being overweight? If that makes sense? Absolutely. Like it's, it, it, it's yeah. about rejection rather than right. weight. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I'm just realizing now that I said that. Cause I was like, I don't really think that like has a value to it, but I was like, no, it really does. Um, uh, I want you to talk really quickly. Can you talk about, um, like getting sober and what that was like for you? Cause we didn't even get into that. Sure. Um, I was 19 and I, I just, it's funny. So they talk about the idea of being like a high bottom or a low bottom drunk. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. Uh, uh, you know, it, based on the outsides of my life, I think most people would think that I was pretty high bottom, but I was so mm-hmm. miserable. I, you know, I was, like I said, 19 years old. I was so focused on drinking. I was working in an industry that... I, well, the industry I cared about, but I, I didn't really care about the the specific job that I was doing or the, the path that I was on. I was just sort of going mm-hmm. through the motions and mm-hmm. everything revolved around when can I get relief? And, and then, uh, you know, in the same way, it's interesting, there are parallels with all of these different disorders, right? Like with eating disorders and with substance use disorders. And mm-hmm. there was it, all of my life was sidelined for 
for alcohol, right? I, yeah. Mostly alcohol. I, you know, I dabbled here and there, but I, I really, you know, booze was my thing because mm-hmm. I, my thought process was like, well, those other things are dangerous, <laughs> which I always laugh when I, when I showed up at AA at 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 19 and going like, Oh, well, I guess this one was too. Just kidding. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I I think just my whole life revolved around it. And my idea of like a good evening was sitting at home alone, watching designing women with a bottle of Kendall Jackson, right? Like that was, and that's not, you know, that's not really a life. That was me mm-hmm. just getting everything, getting really small and wanting to feel okay. And right. so, yeah. So my journey into sobriety was based largely around just feeling really tired and sad and lonely. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I didn't like the person that I was becoming because I'd sort mm-hmm. of, you know, put aside other people's, thoughts or, or wants or needs, um, for my own sort of immediate gratification. Right. Right. And I wasn't willing to, I feel very, very fortunate because I knew some people who had long-term sobriety at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, who I was close with. And I just showed up one day and I was like, I can't keep doing this. Like this is Mm -hmm. painful. And I don't, I don't want my life to go like this. Um, Mm -hmm. and for one reason, you know, or other, I, I ended up getting sober and having lots of wonderful support. You know, I 12 step Mm -hmm. isn't for everyone and it's not a perfect program. But what I will say Mm -hmm. is that I was always surrounded by people who were willing to support me and to, Mm -hmm. to give away what had been freely given to them. And yeah, so my life totally changed as a result of that. I, I, that's Have incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's incredible. Cause it's like, you know, it's hard. Cause like, I, I know 12 step isn't for everyone, but the people that I do know that do it are very adamant about it and mm. wouldn't be where they would be, you know, without it. Yes. Um, yeah. For and sure. my, uh, yeah, I mean, my brother, so my brother's in and out of recovery for heroin. Um, and right now he's using, and I think, you know, I, he used to live in a sober living home in the city and, um, the leader of that home like kind of became my dad when I was in high school because um, he was like a huge role model to me. And now when I when I first met him, he had two sober living homes and now he has seven. Wow. And um, so he really grew. And, and that's like I really commend you because I, I just I know how hard it I mean, I, I don't know personally, but I have spe- spoken with addicts, you know, countless times and like hung out with them. And I um I can only imagine how hard it is, but I also commend you for also being in that program because that program is just, it brings life to so many people. And, you know, even the people I know, that's where their only friends are from. Um, Because a lot of addicts, unfortunately, especially in the NA program, which is what he runs out of, um, and I know they're rivals, but it's like whatever, they're both 12-step programs. But um, it is me ridiculous yeah it's it's any rival it's it's good rivalry it's like we're both clean so who gives a fuck but yeah um he you know all of his friends are like dead and the ones that are alive are in the 12-step program and it's really a scary addiction and i mean obviously like i know we're running out of time but addiction is so scary and i think the the biggest light in most people's life when they get sober is the 12-step program and um 
I just people don't realize like how much it affects first of all I mean like we can go I wish we could talk about how like drinking affects OCD because like I know when I'm hungover it's like the worst thing is my OCD when I wake up so Mm, but um well especially because anxiety is around what you know like if if there was any sort of memory loss or what if I I do (laughs) or yeah Yeah. even if you didn't actually brown out or black out like those thoughts can still come up because yeah anxiety likes to yeah because i don't sometimes when people are like oh you said this like funny thing and i was like what did i say and then i'm like what else did i say and it's just like oh i just yeah. wish i knew you know and um yeah, yeah but i i mean it is it, it's a very scary thing and it it's definitely something that i'm currently trying to uh figure out i definitely want to go to al-anon because i have been to some of those meetings and they've been super helpful yeah um, al-anon's great and look there are yeah. other recovery programs like smart recovery and all and all sorts there's um mm-hmm. uh against the stream which is basically recovery through buddhist principles uh so there are there are different alternatives and i think for sure going to one is you know i don't actually i'm not really involved in 12-step anymore although i'm so grateful Mm -hmm. for the role that it played in my life um yeah so i don't i don't think it's one way i think that totally if if you find another way then go for that but um but i think the one key thing is that you have to be with people that are also getting sober like that's, that's the one really thing. Helpful. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Cause I just don't, I, I don't, if people do it alone, I'm like, you're a God. Cause that's yeah. not yeah. typically the case, you know, it's even with any recovery, OCD recovery. Like I had to be around, you know, group therapy and people that were going through the same thing as me because otherwise I would just, you know, feel very isolated. So definitely. Um, I mean, to have that ability to, um, to be around people who understand you and that takes away so much of the shame. And I will say, mm-hmm. actually, there are a fair amount of people who struggle with both OCD and substance use disorder. In fact, mm-hmm. the and comorbidity rates vary depending on the study that you look at, but uh, around about 27% of people with OCD have a wow. co-occurring substance use disorder. It's a little yeah, big that was one of, of my... Yeah, that was one of my questions of what was the biggest... Well, it was what was the biggest or what was the disorder that has the I guess highest comorbidity comorbidity rate with OCD besides anxiety because I know OCD and anxiety go hand in hand but um yeah I don't know if there was like another one do you know I'm offhand I'd I'd have to look at a PowerPoint presentation to give you the exact number (laughs) yeah no you're good yeah the only other yeah oh I'm sure the only other question I had for you was like what's one piece of advice that you would give to someone who's functioning and like functioning with OCD or anxiety, but they don't really know that they have it, but they do. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, that's a hard one because if, if they don't, if they don't <laughs> think that they have it or even aren't aware of it, then do you know what I mean? Like uh, then they wouldn't necessarily like for people who okay, are so, out there listening yeah. who think that they might have OCD yeah, that's kind of what struggle. I'm getting at. Like they, yeah. they might, yeah, like they might have it and they have anxiety and it's like really controlling their life, but they don't really like know what to do or if they have it. Like, what would be your advice for someone who's like initially in that phase of like, do I have it or is it just overthinking or like, you right? Know, well, and like even it, if it is, is just normal? overthinking, I think actually what's interesting is you know you mentioned that anxiety and OCD are essentially the same thing that it, it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter where you are on the spectrum. If there's an issue, like if you're limping, 
it, mm-hmm. even if you don't see like bone coming through your ankle, you're probably going to yeah. go see a doctor, right? Because <laughs> you're right. like, why am I right. limping and why is this tender? Um, so mm-hmm. you don't have to wait until the bone's coming through your ankle, metaphor- mm-hmm. metaphorically when it comes to OCD, right? Or anxiety. Right. If you have something that sounds like this, it's okay to seek out help before it turns into something more extreme. And, you know, even going to a therapist, getting assessed, there are so many resources online. IOCDF, which is the International OCD Foundation.org, mm-hmm. IOCDF.org is a great resource. Um, and you can find providers, local providers who practice ERP with, for OCD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these days, Instagram is a great resource. There are so yeah. many of us on there. Obviously, I'm on there. At, um, my handle is at the obsessive mind, but mm-hmm. I have a lot of colleagues who are wonderful on there too. Um, mm-hmm. At obsessive compulsive treatment is my dear friend and and colleague Kelly Frankie. There's, um, gosh, Kimberly Quinlan is on there. She's fantastic. I'm, I'm interviewing her like next are you? week. Or, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, I this was great, and I thank you so much for oh. everything, all the resources as well. Yeah, um, of course, my pleasure. And then, yeah, and then my other follow up question to that was just what's what's a piece of advice for someone who like knows they have OCD but is really struggling with with not knowing they have this is this not not asking for a friend <laughs> um, <laughs> but like but like who's going through it right but you have these thoughts and you know what your compulsions are and you're aware but you have trouble stopping the compulsions what's your advice for that can you be my therapist is the last <laughs> question. <laughs> That's so funny. I cannot, as it turns yeah, out. I know. Um, but I, I think, and it's hard to give advice per se, but what I yeah. will say is that you're stronger than you know, right? If anyone is out there and is like, oh, I know what my obsessions are, I know what my compulsions are, and it's just so hard to make the choice not to do the compulsions and right. there, there tends to be this narrative around, Oh, I, you know, I'm so weak. Why can't I do this? Uh, it must be something wrong with me. And the reality is that our capacity to tolerate feelings and to adapt is unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. incredible. And so we tend to underestimate ourselves at every turn. And if you find yourself underestimating your capacity, Mm-hmm. sort of think again, you know, there's a sense of like, <laughs> I can't possibly do this exposure and not do a compulsion. It's probably not true. You probably are capable of it. And, you know, can you soften into some willingness around it mm-hmm. and just take the mm-hmm. leap? Because on the other side of that, everyone with ERP talks about how scary it is. But on the other side of doing an exposure and doing response prevention is a sense of accomplishment and mm-hmm. power and freedom that doesn't live in the realm of practicing compulsions. So yeah. just that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I have the people that I work with are so brave and I think living with false alarms going off in your head all of the time and being willing to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not taking the bait here. How's that for a mixed metaphor? Um, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's incredible. And, and I think that my one 
most important piece of at least tidbit around all of this is that mm-hmm. you're stronger than you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. And I mean, sometimes my friend, my best friend actually, who I'm also having on the podcast, she has OCD. She mm-hmm. sometimes we text each other in the morning. We like, tell it, tell your OCD to fuck off. And it's like <laughs> the funniest. It's the funniest thing. But sometimes like just realizing certain things in your head that come up and you're like, oh, that's my OCD. Like, you know it. And then yeah. you go, fuck off. It like act actually telling it to like stop helps it because you're like aware of the problem and you're tackling it, you know? And you're like, okay, if I'm aware of it, then I'm not going to compulse. And so right. that, that also is just being like, tell it to just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just mean, acknowledging I it's there. Having friends that understand is so critical. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I've, I'm very grateful to have a lot of friends who understand this disorder from the inside out and mm-hmm. learning how to say things like, oh, look, there you are again. Well, welcome. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do yeah. anything about you, but you go ahead uh-huh. and just yammer on in the background because I've got stuff. Yeah. For you. If you insist totally. on coming along for the ride, that's your prerogative. But right. uh, I got to get back to this. So thanks. Thanks so much. I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's like <laughs> the most dismissive. That's like the most dismissive way to like invite someone to party. They're like, yeah, you can be there, but like, I'm not going to talk to right. you, you know? It's I, like... I'm not going to have a conversation <laughs> with you because I've got more important yeah. things to do. You can come, but I have stuff to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I know you mentioned your Instagram, but I just want you to say it again for people who don't know you where to find you, if there's any other platforms as well. Right. So actually, yeah. So there's at the obsessive mind on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I have a Facebook page. I'm not on there a lot, but I do post okay. content on both Instagram and Facebook. If you're more of a Facebook person, I am on Twitter occasionally and <laughs> I'll dabble in TikTok every once in a while, but I, hell yeah, not that's what the kids much. want. That's, that's yeah. what, and it's fun, right? Like I, I once, uh, speaking oh, of yeah. designing women, cause I still love that show. I once did a TikTok <laughs> where I was Julia Sugarbaker and I felt really excited about it. So, you know, <laughs> you gotta do what you can do. Um, oh, for in sure. For sure. In terms of other resources, I do a weekly Instagram live, Instagram TV series with my colleague and dear friend Kelly Frankie, who I mentioned earlier. She's at Obsessive mm-hmm. Compulsive Treatment. And we talk about all the different subtypes of OCD and, and different topics that come up in the context of OCD and answer questions. We've also got mm-hmm. a YouTube channel with all of our videos, depending on if you prefer that sort of. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. We just, we want to spread awareness and and help people who are living every day with this disorder. So yeah, um, that's great. So that's, yeah. And I have uh, a website, uh, which is just the obsessive mind.com. And there are resources on there too. I've got a whole section with books and, and different websites and, and all sorts. So hopefully perfect support somebody. Perfect. I'm, everything is helpful. Oh, um, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate the opportunity to interview you. This was oh. amazing. Well, thank you um, so much. It's genuinely my pleasure. I'm just yeah. grateful to have a, a <laughs> place to talk about this stuff. So hopefully we can help yeah. people to suffer less and live more. For sure. For sure. Um, that's, that's a beautiful tagline to the end of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you everybody for listening to doing time. Yeah. Thanks.